Welcome to IEQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. have changed good day wherever you're listening from and welcome to indoor air quality radio iaq radio for friday march 14th 2008 this week episode 73 comes to you from beautiful coriopolis pennsylvania my name is joe hughes or radio joe and here with me in the studio is the wingman chris boisel Good afternoon, Jeff. Good afternoon, Chris. My co-host, Cliff Slotnick, is at the RIA conference this week. He won't be able to join us, but uh, we've got an interesting show with segments including the microband trivia question. We've got Nancy Seats, the president of Homeowners Against Deficient Dwellings. We've got an update with Elisa Larkin. Good good time since we've seen uh, Lisa. She's back with an update. She's going to help me out a little bit here with the show today. We've got what we call the Instant Replay, a little new segment from show 71. We're going to bring back a little Instant Replay that plays nicely into our topic today. And lastly, we'll go back to the round table, bring everybody back in, and round things up. Don't forget, you can get your IAQ console credits by emailing me for a show quiz. My email is joe.hughes, H-U-G-H-E-S, at iaqtraining.com. We now have people requesting the the quizzes right after the show, and that's a great way to keep up on your renewal credits. I'll get them right out to you. Before we start, we've got to thank our sponsors, Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. And John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. All right. To contact the show, you can either go to the talkshoe, T-A-L-K-S-H-O-E.com website, Follow the directions to get yourself a PIN number. Our show ID is 1547. You can also direct connect now from the widget we send with invitations or from our website at www.iaqradio.com. We appreciate any suggestions. We answer questions. We've got the microband trivia quizzes up there. And uh, we've got great archive. We started a new blog. And we're looking forward to getting more traffic on the IAQ radio website last but not least please visit the iaq training institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com Okay, we got uh, well, it's a little sad news today. There is no microband trivia question this week. And our, our sound effect didn't work, but that's all right. Uh, but we did have correct answers for two previous show questions. Judy Emmerich of Indian Lake, Pennsylvania, got the correct answer from show number 71. A study was done by the University of Arizona to determine whether women or men have dirtier offices. The researchers swabbed and sampled the offices of men and women in five cities, 
Researchers found twice as much bacteria in the women's offices than men's. They also swabbed personal items of the study participants. And we were looking for what was the uh, item that had the most contamination on it. And the correct answer was men's wallets. Judy also got the correct answer from show number 64. This was uh, an archived one, a form of litigation filed by organizations or individuals to intimidate and silence critics or opponents by burdening them with the cost of a legal defense so that they abandon their criticism. Name the term or acronym. The correct answer was SLAP, a strategic lawsuit against public participation. There was no correct answer for last week's question. However, the wingman and I have been working on cleaning up the archives and some nice revisions to the IAQ Radio website. This week, I'm putting up a special prize for the person that answers the most unanswered archive trivia questions. Currently unanswered are questions from shows 72, 68, 67, 66, 61, and 49. Not bad. Out of 73 shows, we've got six available that's six shows. The first person to get three of them will get ten Radio Joe Lucky Dollars. These are cold, hard cash from Radio Joe's personal stash of James Madison Lucky Dollars. So go to the IAQ Radio website, click on Trivia, mine those trivia answers, and we'll send you out some cold, hard cash. All right, let's move on with our first guest. I believe we've got some intro music for Nancy. This old house is getting shaky, boys. This old house is getting old. This old house lets in the rain now, and this house lets in the cold. And my knees are getting chilly, but I feel no fear of pain. For I see an angel peeping through a broken window pane. Well, I ain't got an easy... Hi, thank you, Chris. Nancy Seats is passionate about protecting the rights of ordinary, hardworking citizens who no longer seem to have a voice with elected officials on the local, state, or federal level due to money in politics. She grew up in a small town in northwest Iowa and has lived in California and Arizona and now resides in Kirkwood, Missouri. Some of you may remember that Kirkwood was unfortunately in the news recently when two city council members and a code official and two police officers were killed at a city council meeting in February. Nancy is the former elementary school teacher. She taught in high school. She's a special education teacher, and she has been the president of Homeowners Against Deficient Dwellings for over 10 years now. We're not sure exactly how many, but we'll find out in just a moment. She also had me mention that she has three beautiful daughters and seven outstanding grandchildren, and we're really looking forward to talking to Nancy. Hello, Nancy. Are you on the line? Hello, Nancy. Hello, Joe. All right, we got you. Hey, great to have you on. Thanks for joining us and telling us a little bit about the Homeowners Against Deficient Dwellings. How did HADD start HAD, and how long ago was it formed, Nancy? Well, in about 1992, a few homeowners in the Kansas City metropolitan area found each other. They had serious structural defects. And some of them had the same builder. That's kind of how they got together. And eventually I saw a newspaper article that where they were having a meeting, and I called and I joined up, and I've been doing this ever since. 1992. Pardon? That was 1992? Right. Wow, 16 years. We thought this was just a Kansas City metro problem until we got a website in 1998. And that's when we discovered it's a national disaster. Okay. Now, do you have any paid staff on the HAD, uh, at the HAD headquarters? No. Everyone that works with HAD is an unpaid volunteer who was had by the builder of their own new home. Okay. So let me get this right. Back in 92 or so, you met these folks and um, found out that it wasn't just a local problem. You put together a website back in 1998. I've been to your website. It's a pretty comprehensive website. How, how did you put together such a comprehensive site with the limited funding that uh, you've had? Well, it's all volunteer, and we've had several different volunteer webmasters. 
and uh, between our volunteers in different states and our volunteer webmaster, they've done the research and put it all together. Our webmaster it lives in Ohio, and he's put together all of the, we've got state chapter page, and he put together all of that information. It took him, you know, months to, to do the research for each state. I was really impressed with the, um, the section that allows you to search for, and there's a wealth of information on that section about codes, uh, state departments, state contacts, uh, the actual links to the regulations in the states. How was that put together? Volunteer research. Okay. So the same people all put that together. I, I mean, I've right. seen groups, you know, actually pay somebody to go out and put all that information together. I, I thought there were some great links on there. I went to Pennsylvania. I was a little surprised. Well, I wasn't surprised I actually had known this, but Pennsylvania does not license contractors. Is that common around the country? It's quite common. Um, but the, the states like um, Arizona, California, Nevada, and Florida have good licensing programs, yet we get just as many complaints from those states as we do from the states that have none. So we don't feel that these licensing programs, we, we think they've got the fox guarding the hen house. I see. Because there's a commission that oversees the licensing, and either they're underfunded or the people on the commission are connected with the industry because... We're still getting many complaints from those those states. Many. What What are the most common complaints that you're getting, Nancy? Well, almost all of the complaints um, are structural defect complaints, and most of those structural defects lead to water intrusion that homeowners may not discover the water intrusion for several years. And by that time, there's wood rot and sometimes mold that has formed. And um, the other thing is they soon discover that the third-party warranty that the builder gave them <laughs> when they bought the house is pretty worthless. The exclusions are extensive. And they contain a binding mandatory arbitration clause that um, keeps the homeowner from being able to sue the third-party warranty, or the builder. Well, let's go into a little more detail on that in a minute. But before we do, last week, or two weeks ago, I guess it was, we had a building science guru on, and we're going to do an instant replay from him a little later in the show. I'm curious, we had talked a little earlier, what are the specific areas you see most commonly leading to these moisture problems? Lack of roofing felt poor installation of materials, lack of window flashing, rebar and foundations that uh, allow cracks that let the water in. Window flashing is a real a big one because we've got so many people with windows that leak. And yeah. it gets down between the walls, so they don't know it until the damage is extensive. You know, that's one that I know is a pet peeve of uh, Dr. Steebrooks. He... Um he uh, really uh, is very adamant about the fact that you need proper window flashing and pan flashing in particular, and you're just verifying that uh, the people who call you for help are experiencing that same problem. What What's the process, Nancy? Let's say uh, we've got a homeowner out there or a listener or a lot of our guests, just so you're aware, actually help homeowners with these types of problems. How would they go about getting assistance from HAD? What's, what's the process? Well, you know, we started hoping to help, every, help everyone resolve their issues. But it didn't take us long to realize that state laws are not there for homeowners, the largest purchase a family ever makes. There's little or no consumer protection in almost every state. So there isn't a lot of help out there. You know, I, we, we're a great support for families that get into this situation because we totally understand their frustration, the way it is destroying them financially, emotionally, and sometimes physically. So I, I call us the 
AA for homeowners, <laughs> a support group for homeowners. There's just not a lot of help out there. So I noticed when you go to the website before you, uh, there was a, a section that said you had to fill out a complaint first. Is that still the case? You have to fill out a complaint before you can contact uh, or work with your group? We really need that. It's gotten so big. I sometimes have 600 emails in my inbox. Homeowners that email me with their, their problems. If they file a complaint, they will get, we've made up an automatic response that's several pages long with tons of information, places they can go to try to get help, all of that, that cuts down on, on the burden that we have. So we need people to file that complaint, and often we never hear from them again because the information they get in that response is what they needed. I see. And if you we just can't answer every email. I understand. You have limited resources, and, and you're trying to help in many ways. One is by helping people that have these problems, and, and I'm, I'm just curious if people do contact you after filling out the complaint. Do you have some kind of, uh, I guess, a group that uh, they can join, like a Yahoo group or something like that, and that they can discuss their problems with each other and try and bounce ideas off each other? We do have a blog and a message board on our website now, and we have um, representatives that deal. We, we send people with arbitration issues, certain ones of our representatives, that have become pretty expert in that on that issue, you know. So and so we have different people that we send certain complaints to that have really studied these issues. Most of them have had the problem themselves and educated themselves very well, so they can they can talk with others um, and and get help that way. I see. Now let's let's get into that arbitration thing, but I, I want to first backtrack a little bit and discuss how you and what your personal experience was that got you involved with this group. Well, I bought a patio home, a new patio home in 1991, and in 1992 found water intrusion everywhere in my finished basement. It had probably been going on for a while, but because of the carpet I didn't realize it. And that's when I found the group. Um, I had, uh, I, I'm the luckiest homeowner victim I've worked with because I didn't have an arbitration clause. I actually had a jury trial. The jury was unanimous in their decision, awarded me the most the state would allow, which was the cost of repair or loss in value, whichever was less but no attorney fees or expert witness fees. So even when you win, you lose. But to top that off, I actually was able to collect the money. Lots of people can't collect the money, even if they get an award. But my builder's insurance company paid, paid my award. I see. So, but, you know, I found the water in 1992, and my case wasn't over until the end of 1999. I had to fire three attorneys along the way that did nothing but research and bill. Attorneys really don't like individual homeowner cases. They're very time intensive, and the money just isn't there. For one thing, very almost no states allow attorneys' fees to be awarded in a case. So, and then if you can't collect the award, the attorney doesn't know if he's going to get paid or not. I see. That makes it really difficult. Now, this was 93, 92, and then it took to 98 or so to get rectified. What has changed since then that makes it even more difficult for people that currently have these problems to well, get them um, rectified? The state of Texas has people that love tort reform because they claim uh, ordinary citizens are filing frivolous lawsuits against them. So in Texas, they started um, legislation that's called right to repair that makes it much more difficult for homeowners to uh, file suit against a homeowner, even if they don't they can and don't have an arbitration clause. They have figured out so many ways to protect builders from accountability that it's, 
it's incredible. Between arbitration and right to repair, few homeowners ever get to court. What? So they started this legislation in Texas, and it's been spreading around the country. I was able to get our governor in Missouri to, to veto it about five years ago, but he lost the next election, and the new governor signed it into law. Okay. So it's in 36 states at least by now. And that's right, called right to repair. Mm-hmm. And There's that... about 12 steps that a homeowner has to follow precisely, or they lose their right to sue. And it's, it's, it, the burden is put on the victim. And this is what your group helps people through, those types of steps that they have to go through now because they're caught in these right to repair or these arbitration clauses. Right, right. Now, can you tell us a little bit more about what's happened? I don't know how long it's been, but uh, with these arbitration clauses that have been now included in all of the uh, contracts. Well, arbitration has spread exponentially in the last 10 years. It's in almost anything you buy, any contract you sign. And, uh, you know, there, it was around before 10 years ago, but it's just... You know, the builders, the National Association of Home Builders advises all of their members to use arbitration clauses. And they always name the arbitration service that has to be used. So they're repeat players, and they, the homeowners get a list of arbitrators to choose from, but it's which they say makes it uh, unbiased because you have a choice. But we know arbitrators whose names never appear on the list because they ruled the wrong way. Hmm. So it's just, it's a kangaroo court. I see. Now, with this arbitration, you mentioned that these clauses aren't just, you know, with uh, new construction or with, um, you know, with home, in homes. You're, you're, you were telling me that you're seeing those types of clauses, and, and I've probably signed them and not, not known it. Oh, I know you have. I just, cell phones, uh, computers, nursing homes, doctors, everything today, almost everything, uh, realtors, you know, everything. You So anyway, I'm a member of a coalition based in Washington, D.C. called Give Me Back My Rights, and they have been able to get Senator Feingold and Representative Hank Johnson from Georgia to um, introduce legislation called the Arbitration Fairness Act of 2007. It was introduced in July, and they've had some committee hearings, subcommittee hearings on that. Um, the Chamber of Commerce and all big corporations will fight it, like till the death. They will fight with money to stop that legislation from ever being passed, but. Hopefully, the, the coalition is big enough, and educating the public about the dangers of arbitration will help to put enough pressure on elected officials to do the right thing. And what, what was the name of that group again, Nance? Give Me Back My Rights. Give Me Back My Rights. And do they have a website? They do, but I don't have the address of that website in my head. That's okay. We'll, uh, we'll find it. And we'll post it on the IAQ radio site after the show today. That'd be great. I know Public Citizen is involved, and um, there's several. Uh, in fact, I could probably send you links, but I don't have my computer up because I've moved. Well, Nancy, let me ask you this. Okay, we. I don't want to bash builders here, but I want to know: Do you ever? Uh, do you find some good builders? I saw builders that signed one of your petitions. So I'm assuming there are some good builders out there. Are you saying they're all bad, or are there some good oh, ones? Oh, no, of course not. There are good builders out there. The, our problem is that we just wish that they would recognize that the bad apples in their barrel are harming their reputation, too, and they should join us in demanding better consumer protection for home buyers. I noticed it you... It wouldn't hurt the good guys. You know, it would get rid of the competition that, that they have because they're, they're spending more to build their houses than these guys that are cutting corners. You know, it's, it, it, the good builders should be joining with us in this battle, so and they're not. Do you see that as a pattern, that you'll get a lot of similar complaints from the same 
area or the same uh, track of homes? Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Now, a lot of homeowners uh, will submit a complaint and say that every house in their subdivision has similar problems. And I always respond and say, tell all of them to submit a complaint. None of them do. They're so afraid. You know, they, once they learn there's no consumer protection, they don't want anybody to know they've got a bad house. Because that's a huge financial situation for them, and they don't want to lose value in their home. They want to be able to sell it. Now, we also get a lot of complaints from homeowners who've bought resale with non-disclosure. And it's all because there's no consumer protection. Okay. You know, people are covering up the problem and selling it to the next victim. So this is a problem that goes beyond just the first person that buys the house. A lot of times people cover it up and then sell it to someone um, else and now you've got two you know, people. Two years ago, Consumer Reports did a great uh, story uh, investigation kind of on this subject and they found that 15% of new homes each year have two or more serious defects. At that time, we figured that would be 150,000 houses each year. Now that percentage has risen uh, quite a lot since I think that story came out in 2004. And, and so the percentage has gone up every year since then. And once the builders got in so much trouble with all this bad lending and, and the housing slowdown, construction got worse and worse and worse. Well, Nancy, we're going to uh, take a short break here, and then we're going to bring you back. I've got an update coming up with Elisa Larkin. If, can you hang in there with us for a little bit longer? Sure. Okay, great. Before we go to the update, I want to make sure that we thank our sponsors again. Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dryease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dryease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. And John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. I want to thank those sponsors and also encourage anybody out there that's a listener. We've got uh, our top-line sponsors are all sold now, but we're looking at the side-line sponsors here, the second tier, and we're certainly interested in hearing from you. Okay, we've got a little intro for Elisa Larkin. All right, Elisa. We kept it short and simple, huh? <laughs> How are you, dear? I'm doing good. Good, good. good. Ready we, to rumble, huh? I like it. Ready to rumble. Ready to rumble, Elisa Larkin. I was looking at my archives, Elisa. We had you on in December, December 8th to be specific, of 2006 on show number 14. My How Time Flies. What's been going on with you since then? A lot, actually. Um, to, well, first of all, Nancy did, has done a fabulous job so far. She's, you know, I've met her, had the privilege of meeting her when I was going through a similar issue, but on the rental side. And by the way, Nancy, just along your lines, um, my case is not resolved yet either, and that's from O2. So, wow. <laughs> I sympathize. Um, <clears throat> and the show that you had me on. God, I can't believe it's been that long, was the IICRC appeal from the S520 mold standard. And as many of your listeners know, um, through IE Connections, that it went to a hearing within IICRC. And um, I was, uh, surprise, surprise, voted again <laughs> in that. And um, am currently, through the support, again, of, of several people within the industry, um, working on an appeal to ANSI where I am asking them to, um, well, the way I have to word it is I'm asking them to revoke IICRC's accreditation. And the reason I have to do that is because that is the only way that they will actually audit 
IICRC's practices and procedures. Now, well, Lisa, you've, haven't you been working with them and trying to get this rectified? Have, have, have you had any good meetings? Is there any light at the end of the tunnel possible here? No. And um, since my hearing, which has been about a year ago or almost a year, um, I have not spoken to anybody over there. Uh, many of you knew Mark Hansen, and he passed away. That was on your show, I think, a, a week or two ago. Yes, it was. Um, and, and you know, with that um, loss in the industry and the loss within IICRC, um, a lot of ability to do the right thing went with him, unfortunately. Well, so hopefully I'm we can... Working with him. <laughs> Hopefully we can give him a little nudge here today. Come on, guys, let's let's get together and get this thing settled, huh? Exactly. Follow the policies and procedures. You set them. You know, you follow them. Um, they're your procedures. So that's still what I'm asking them to do. Um, haven't given up, although you know nobody's really heard much about it because I've really been focusing on getting it done instead of talking about getting it done. Well, it's good to. Um, Good to have you back. Now, Elisa, you're still doing the, the green cleaning thing. Have you cha- I, I understand there was a recent change, though. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, yes. Um, I basically started something last year, um, went through a lot of trials and tribulations trying to start the first uh, all-green environmental and restoration company. We finally worked out many, many kinks at a huge expense and um, are now to the point where um, it's, it's making money, <laughs> Good. which is always a plus. And, you know, some of the things that I was just at the RIA convention, and for those of you that missed it, you missed a great show. Um, while I was there, I spoke on going green and, and kind of how to do it. And, you know, there's several ways and with the incentives that most of the states are offering, you know, it makes a lot of sense to, to get on that. In particular, when you have uh, BOMA, Building Owners and Managers Association, um, going in that direction. You know, last summer they instituted and adopted a seven-point um, policy for all of their members to go green by 2012. And so, um, you know, it, it makes sense for the restoration industry to, to step up to the plate and move in that direction, and there's a lot of different ways to do that. Can you give um, us just one or two concrete examples of how your company is doing things differently than, you know, different from the way other companies are? Sure. Our waste management, I think, is, is the biggest change. Um, we actually recycle everything that we take off the job site, and the cost or the savings associated with that has been astronomical. You know, typically in our industry, we we um, <clears throat> rent a 30, 40-yard dumpster and we throw everything in it. And then we pay somebody to haul that off and take it to a landfill. Well, in the state of Massachusetts, also by 2012, it's mandatory that companies start uh, have to start reducing their landfill um, usage by, I think it's 35%. So what we did is we're recycling everything. We take out the gypsum board, we recycle that. There's a recycling center um, in Massachusetts or several around the country. You know, we recycle that. They turn it into <clears throat> new gypsum board, uh, soil, um, just about anything you can possibly imagine. They're turning it into compost. So um, we're doing that. Same with the metal studs, the wood studs. Um, you know, take it out clean. It doesn't even matter if it's um, sewage, water, um, mold, because the paper backing, everything comes off of it during the process, and then it's heated in the process of turning it into something different um, sanitizes the material. So there's, you know, virtually no risk there for those that are worried about, you know, contamination in, in other materials. How do you recycle the the wood, uh, the the structural members? Do you pull pull the nails, or do you have someone that is uh, willing to take that type of construction material? Well, actually, there are several. There's actually an association for recycling uh, building materials. It's uh, Construction and Demolition Association, and what we do 
is instead of during the mold process doing demolition, we do what we call deconstruction, which is a more careful process of removing the moldy material so that it can be recycled. So we can take it in with the nails and they'll pull it out, or we pull it out during the process of deconstruction so that we have the integrity of the wood. Then that wood is um, cleaned and treated prior to being reused. Interesting. So, yeah, so there's nothing within a building anymore that cannot be recycled, and, and we've reduced our waste management bills by about 60 or 70 percent. That's great news. Another thing that we've done is um, uh, biodiesel. Ah. <laughs> races. You can actually go to biodiesel, I think it's biodieselassociation.org, and um, there's about a 110-page PDF file that teaches you how you yourself can convert your diesel fuel into biodiesel. And um, so, you know, basically you convert it, you get about three to 400 miles to the gallon of diesel because you're only using it for the combustion um, to light the, the veggie oil, basically, so that it can, you know, run on the veggie oil. And the modifications are, are really inexpensive. Um, if, if you follow the guide and do it yourself, you know, of course, it can go upwards to thousands of dollars, I'm sure, if you had it retrofitted by somebody else. But it was um, relatively inexpensive. You can have the refinery, you know, right there on site as vegetable oil is not regulated. And restaurants actually have to pay to have, um, have the oil disposed of once it's used. So they really appreciate you coming by and picking it up for them. Hmm. Sounds and, great. Um, and you get free oil. <laughs> so, yeah, there's several different ways. Um, job sharing is another thing that, that we're using and utilizing. And, you know, the state actually helps offset the cost um, and pays you to train your employees. So, you know, there's several different ways to, to cut costs and, and be green um, through, you know, through the processes that you use. Chemicals, you know, are, are such a small portion of it. So. Well, we'll look forward to uh, maybe bringing you back again to go into a little more detail, if that's all right. Yeah, that'd be fine. Great. And, and we'd like to bring you back here. We'll probably at uh, about 10 till go into the roundup. Excellent. Bring you back in and maybe you and Nancy can chat a little bit. Great. Thanks, Lisa. Actually, I, I think I have 10 questions for you. Yeah. So what I'd like you to do is just give me one of your top 10 lists that you've put together from 1 to 10 or 10 to 1, however you want to do it. Oh, okay. Um, don't let northerners design buildings in the south. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Number nine. <laughs> um, don't put vapor barriers on the inside of air-conditioned buildings. Number eight. Um, don't build crawl spaces. <laughs> Number seven. <laughs> if you're going to build a crawl space, um, make sure that it's either completely inside the building or completely outside the building. <laughs> Number and six. Let me, let me evaluate. Oh, go let, ahead. Me sort of, go ahead. let me sort of elaborate that. Look, the problem isn't the crawl space. The problem is as people haven't decided whether the air in the crawl space belongs inside the building or belongs outside. If we were to build a crawl space that's vented, we want to make sure that it's completely connected to the outside. That makes sense in a flood area. You're building in Charleston, South Carolina, for gosh sakes, you build the building up and you have an air barrier and a vapor barrier under the floor and you don't care what happens underneath it. You're building in, you know, Chicago and you have a crawl space, you know, it should be a mini basement, it should be inside. So if you're going to build a crawl space, first of all, don't build one. And if you're going to build one, make it outside or inside. Pick one. Okay. What about number six? <laughs> don't build attics. <laughs> number five. <laughs> well, if you're going to build an attic, decide whether you want it outside or Inside. Inside. Number four. <laughs> Don't attach a garage to your house. Okay. Oh, that's a good that's one. A good okay. One. I haven't heard that one before. Number three? Number three. If you're going to attach a garage to your house, make sure it's not connected to your house. Number two? <laughs> <laughs> 
puts your furnace and air conditioner inside your house. <laughs> <laughs> Number one. If you're going to put your furnace and air conditioner inside the house, make sure it's sealed combustion or you die. Okay. <laughs> well, thank uh, you. Right. Thank you, Chris. That's what we are going to refer to as the IAQ Radio Instant Replay. That one was from show 71 with Joe Stebrook. And I thought it tied nicely into today's subject. Let's bring Nancy back on. Nancy, I had another question for you here. You have, um, can you give us an example of how you were able to help a consumer that was being treated unfairly? Well, I, what, the best example that I can think of right now is our, our representative, uh, Renee Haynes, who lived in Oregon at the time. She now lives in Washington State and represents both states for us, but she had a serious uh, structural defect, water intrusion lawsuit, but um, the builder had a binding arbitration clause in his contract that named CAS as the arbitration service that had to be used. We were able, through a lot of research, to learn <clears throat> that CAS, one of the owners of that, was uh, a disbarred attorney in oh the state of New York, I believe it was, and Washington, D.C. Hmm. But he submitted an affidavit saying that he was a licensed attorney. And so Renee was able to get that arbitration clause overturned and was able to go to a jury trial, which was the b biggest uh, jury trial over a mold issue in the state of Oregon at that time, and she won her case. That's the biggest one we've held. That's excellent. Now, um, can you give us an example of where you've been unable to help somebody, and you know what, what kind of consequences were the result of that? Oh, there's so many. There's so many. Because you can't, if, you, if they can't go to court, they... The arbitration is terrible. They, I mean, we have so many homeowners. You know, the foreclosures today aren't just due to fraudulent lending. And I, you can call it subprime, predatory, whatever you want to call it. It's fraud. Uh, but the foreclosures are not just due to lending issues. There are many, many homeowners um, with these structural defects that can get no resolve that have no choice but to let the house go to foreclosure. They can't live in it because it's full of mold, and they can't sell it for enough to pay off the mortgage. They don't have the money to uh, pursue, you know, a lawsuit, or they can't if there's arbitration. These houses are going, lots of them are going to foreclosure. Well, how do people avoid this, Nancy? What's, you know, what's the biggest mistake people make when they are buying a new home? Well, you know, um, I just bought a new condo, and and I probably know more than, way more than the average home buyer. I had a, a good home inspector, um, but come to find out, after moving in and using the shower in the master bedroom, and the home inspector ran that water in the shower for a long time, we found no problem. Once somebody stood in the shower, the shower leaked into the basement. Big uh, time. Okay. So, you know, our, because there's so little recourse for a homeowner who's been had, our goal now is to educate the public so that they can learn how to protect themselves before they buy a home. But here I am, educating other people how to protect themselves, and I... I couldn't protect myself. Huh. The home inspector said I couldn't stand in the shower in my clothes, and you know, and it was the pressure on the floor of the shower that caused us to learn that it was leaking. Well, I would think in today's market. Now, follow me here for a moment, Nancy. In today's market, doesn't the buyer have more? Mm, I don't know, a little more uh, sway, and couldn't they somehow work? to get the contract documents um, redesigned in a way that's a little more, you know, advantageous for them? Have you seen that at all? 
Well, there may be some people that can do that, but I think it's rare. I've I've had homeowners when I was still in the Kansas City area that I sent a list of things that they they should uh, ask the builder to use in his contract. And the builder just says, nope, don't want to build you a house. Find another builder. And they, they'll all say the same thing. So if you want to build a house, you accept their uh, contract or they, and that, but that was during the big boom. You know, today, maybe because things are, have gotten so bad, they'll change their ways a little bit. So you do have a list that you send people of suggestions for things to get into their contract documents. Well, we don't have many people contact us before they buy. We've got the information on the website, different documents that can be downloaded of things that they should, you know, be careful of. And we have a book that we have written. It's ready for, for printing. We just need to find a, um, an affordable printer. Okay. okay. That would be excellent for people to have before they buy a house. And what's the name of the book? Well, I don't know. <laughs> don't know yet. I don't, I don't know if we have it named. Uh, if we do, I don't remember. Well, I hope and you I can. Tried to find that out last night, but. Yeah, I hope you can get that out. I know. In the meantime, there's one called Home Building Pitfalls that that's on your site, and that may be a, a resource for people. Yes, um, and and several people have said that they've really uh, felt that that book was helpful. I noticed, too, that it wasn't all terribly expensive. I think it was $22, and you could even download it right away. So I'm sure you could find a few good tips in there that would be well worth your $22. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. I also noticed that you have a homeowner's bill of rights on your website there. Can yeah. you tell us a little bit about what that's all about? Well, we think those – I don't have that bill of rights right in front of me. I should have um, pulled it up. Not a problem. I've got it right here. <laughs> we, uh, how many? Uh, I I don't remember. There's maybe a dozen points there. Or? Yeah, I'm looking at. Uh, they have the right to expect their new home, and/or any home improvements are built in compliance with all existing local, state, and federal building codes and ordinances. Do you find that's right. a big problem? Oh, absolutely! It's amazing to me uh, how many people are living in brand new homes with certificates of occupancy that have structural defects. I think these uh, home or these uh, city inspectors do drive-by inspections. Uh, I think that a little bit of money across the table. In fact, my house in Liberty, Missouri, had had building code violations, and I always laughed and said a six-pack of beer probably paid off, bought off this, the city inspector. But the problem there is that, and how many homeowners I've worked with would just love to sue the city because they didn't enforce code. They've got sovereign immunity. How many people do you know have a job that they don't have to do and get paid for by taxpayer dollars and can't be held accountable for not doing the job? Not many. Although I hear the opposite from the builders, that the code people don't know what they're doing and that they are too tough on them. Where, where's I'm the sure middle ground? I'm sure you do. All right, let's go I, to the next one. I was just on the local NBC News. They did a 20-minute interview, great interview. If they used a minute of it, it would be a miracle. But they had the Home Builder President, Association President, on, and he was on for like three minutes, countering anything that I might have said. Okay. It, now, the one power, of the other... Power is unbelievable. Well, we've got the power of the people we're working on here, Nancy. That's why we've got you on, and I know you've been trying for years to uh, help make sure that the people do have some kind of protection and some kind of way of banding together, and that's what HAD's all about. Now, I know you've got a, um, you know, you've got a, a, an interesting, I guess it's a chapter program, state chapters. Which are your most active state chapters? Well... The most active right now would be California, Oregon, Washington, Oklahoma, Tennessee, Missouri, Texas. Uh, those are the representatives that are that we've been working with mostly, most recently. Um, some people want to be a state representative, and they they say they're 
you know, even when they get their problem resolved, they will stick with it. But people come and go, and we understand that. People have jobs. They've got kids. They've got other things to do. If they get past their home problem, they move on. But, but there's a core group of us that have been doing this for 15 years, and we'll never quit. If anybody ever decides or suggests that they're just tired of this, I always say, I am too, but we can't quit because if we quit, they win, and we can't let that happen. Well, Nancy, I appreciate your passion on the subject, and what I'd like to do at this point is what we call the roundup. We're going to bring Lisa Larkin back on, and you and I will stay on the line here, and we'll talk for the last 10 minutes of the uh, show, and we'll wrap things up. But before we do, I want to uh, point out that that Homeowner's Bill of Rights is on your website over on the left-hand column for anybody that wants to take a look at um, the types of rights that Nancy and the HAD people were trying to fight for uh, home buyers to have. I think about hit him up, hit him up, about hit him up, roll high. Cut him out, ride him in, ride him in, cut him out, cut him out. Ride him in, roll high. Right, we've got uh, Nancy. We got you back, and I believe we've got Elisa back. Yeah. All right, Elisa, and and you know, um, I see Central Colorado down here as well, and I just got an email. By the way, before I forget, Nancy, what is the website again? If you could tell our listeners, it's www.hadd.com. HADD.com. Thank you, Ed Diggs, for the reminder. And Central Colorado, if you want to uh, text a question in or if you want us to take you off mute, just uh, text us and let us know. Elisa, anything you'd like to add or talk to Nancy about? Hi, Nancy. How are you? Oh, I'm fine, Elisa. It's been a long time since we talked. Yes, it has. It's been forever. Glad to, glad to see you're still at it. <laughs> just send me an email. I don't have a current contact information for you okay i will definitely do that mm -hmm. I, I think what i would like to say out there joe is that um regardless of, of what role you're playing in your society whether it be a restoration contractor environmental contractor a homeowner um a, a renter um there's a lot that we can do to green up our environment and um the important thing is finding a way that works for you, you know, because the information out there is amazing, but if you're not willing to commit to it, no matter how trivial it may be, then it's not, that program's not going to work for you. So, um, you know, just to kind of shore up that end of it, um, find something that works for you that you're willing to do and, and do it. Well, Nancy, you know, before we go, I also wanted to ask, is there anything that we missed that you'd like to add? I mean, there's some burning issue that, that we kind of missed or, or one that we covered that you'd like to just add a little emphasis to. Well, the Homeowner Bill of Rights on our website I think is extremely important. There is no excuse for any home not meeting the standards that we have in that Homeowner Bill of Rights. And the other burning issue is get these binding mandatory arbitration clauses out of builder contracts and their third-party warranties because we just have no rights at all. They, you know, they're now putting um, uh, clauses in contracts that, uh, that, that take away states' laws of habitability. They can they can build houses today that aren't habitable, That's... and get by with it contractually. Wow! Now I noticed you have um, one of the issues that you mentioned in the homeowner's bill of rights is the preservation of documents. What can you tell us a little bit about why that's been a problem and what what you mean by the preservation of documents? Well. Um, I think it, it's probably referring to, and I 
honestly don't remember. Well, I'll, let me read it to you. Builders and cities building departments are mandated by law to maintain, archive, and make available yeah. to homeowners copies of all residential blueprints for a period of 10 years from completion or face penalties and fines, etc. Is that not the case now? Or? That's what I thought. I thought it was pertaining to because once you've moved, for one thing, I couldn't, when I knew I had problems, I couldn't get a copy of, of my blueprint, plans and specifications. I had to subpoena them uh, because they belonged to the architect or the builder. Now, those have to be turned into the city to get the building permit. And the city should keep those on file, but I couldn't get mine from the city. So, and I think that's true in, everywhere. And another thing, it's pretty important, too, that the city, in, because the city codes inspectors inspect certain stages of construction. Those inspections should be kept on file for a long time. So that once a pro if a problem develops, you can go back and see what passed, what didn't pass, how many times it didn't pass, you know, inspection. Those documents are extremely important to somebody who ends up having a structural problem. And you've had problems, obviously, getting those in the past then? Oh, yes. Oh, oh yes. Okay. And that's part of the Homeowner's Bill of Rights, folks. And uh, one other thing I wanted to point out from this Homeowner's Bill of Rights before we let you go, Nancy, is uh, you've got safe and sound housing in here, holding all building developers responsible and liable for any and all building code violations. All builders must buy, abide by and build in accordance with applicable federal, state, and local building laws and regulations. Builders are responsible for the proper application of all building materials according to manufacturer specifications. Is that something you find is a problem? That's really important because when shingles are, are put on and, and the manufacturer's directions for installation or the windows are installed and, and these things are in the siding, if they don't follow manufacturer's directions for installation, it takes away the war the manufacturer's warranty so you can't go back to the people that made the product if it's been installed wrong and the arbitration clause protects the builders so you are right. caught in a catch-22 huh that's right interesting well nancy i'll tell you it's been alisa please please do um even with one of the problems i see with with the new construction is that homeowners do not, uh, potential home buyers do not um, hire a home inspector because the cities inspect them. Yes. And, and so they rely on, you know, the city giving them the, the permit of occupancy as that the building is okay and to code. That's one of the One of the things that we saw in Norman, Oklahoma, um, oh gosh, five years ago, our mayor, in all his infinite wisdom, decided that workers' uh, compensation insurance was too expensive for the city, and so he opted to not carry workers' comp insurance, but instead um, put it put money aside, which is totally allowable under the law, for claims. And then what we saw was that slowly but surely. The building inspectors were not allowed to inspect roofs because it was too dangerous for them to be up there, and the likelihood of a claim from that was expensive and, and risky, so they couldn't go on roofs. They couldn't go in crawl spaces because God only knows what you're going to run into under there, so they couldn't inspect those. So it became really the only thing that they could inspect was walking in and what was visual and to the naked eye was, was it. And... Um, yeah, we had whole additions going up that were shoddy because of that, um, that wisdom of, of trying to save the city a buck. And, and so I would say to, to new home buyers too, you know, hire a home inspector who's going to look out for your best interest, your homework. Nancy, anything you'd like to add before we go? I'm sorry. Somebody was beeping in on the phone. I didn't hear it. <laughs> well, I, what I would like to add is that we discussed codes in show 71, and 
I think it's important for the public to understand how codes came about and why they came about. They're primarily there because of health and safety considerations. They are slowly getting to the point where they are addressing the types of issues that may lead to uh, defects like moisture problems, etc. So I think people no, are under a false impression. Those things are part of the code, Joe. Excuse me? Those things are part of the code. Um, you know. To some degree they are. To some degree they are. But like the flashing on the windows may not necessarily be covered on the code. You know, you know what I mean, Nancy? So... I think some people have a false sense of security that the building codes are going to make sure that the, none of these problems you described will come about. And really, right. uh, yeah, and, and I think really they need to be aware that a good home inspector and, uh, you know, an independent home inspector is a valuable person if you can find them. During construction. <laughs> During construction. And mm -hmm. with that, I think we're going to thank both of you. I want to thank our two guests, both Nancy Seats of the Homeowners Against Efficient Dwellings. That's www.hadd.com. I want to thank Elisa Larkin for coming back and uh, giving us an update on her activities. I want to thank the wingman, Chris Boisel. And, uh, of course, I want to thank our growing group of loyal listeners. Please come on back and join us again next week for the next edition of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production.